Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to the special episode of Dead Pundit Society. Wanted to take this opportunity now that we are between season one and season two of the podcast to replay my state theory and socialist strategy series that I ran last year. I called that many things at the time. I called it labor in the capitalist state and a couple of other terms that I used to refer to those episodes. But now I think that it's really cohered into something very uh, specific and unique, I think, to the podcast uh, podcastosphere, if you will. We did something really special, and I wanted to take the opportunity to run those episodes uh, in sequential order so that folks can really take in the argument in full. So this is episode one of State Theory and Socialist Strategy. I'm going to play the entire episode that I did with Raphael Kachaturian. Last year, I put that out in uh, two parts, but this time around, I'm going to put it out back to back. It's a nice lengthy interview. It goes about two hours, and Raphael and I walk through, oh geez, 175 years of state theory, starting with Marx and Engels and moving all the way nearly to the present with Nikos Poulansas and Ralph Miliband and a couple of other state theorists. This series, I think, is going to be really essential in moving us towards uh, season two. I'm all about strategy here at Dead Pond Society and, and our way of seeing the world, as Raphael and I will lay out in the interview, our very way of seeing the world as socialists is through capitalist state theory. Uh, we have to see the state and society as a field of terrain, as a field of contending forces that are materialized in various ways throughout history. If we don't have a field of terrain, we certainly can't make a playbook and we certainly can't operate strategically. So these episodes are really important. Uh, they're a little academic. Get out your pen and uh, paper and notebooks and dictionaries and Wikipedia and all the rest of it. <laughs> but I think it will be well worth the effort. I got a lot of compliments when these episodes came out originally from people who themselves were not academics and they really learned a lot and it, it spurred them on to read more, to think more, and to re-listen to these episodes and take this stuff seriously in their organizing and in their activity as socialists in the real world. Head over to patreon.com and support the project. It's patreon.com slash deadpundits. Season two is coming. My new co-host Amy and I are working on episodes as we speak. And uh, there's going to be a lot of really great stuff there continuing on this state theory and social strategy theme and covering all the other topics that you've come to know and love on Dead Pundit Society. So without further ado, here is my two-hour interview with Raphael Kachaturian. Enjoy. Ever hear of Karl Marx? In his mind, communism was born more than a hundred years ago. He looked at the world and saw men as divided into two classes, workers and capitalists. In the Communist Manifesto, he called upon the workers, the proletarians, to rise up and overthrow their capitalistic masters. He cried, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries, unite. 
This was the promise and the challenge of communism. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Rafael Kachaturian. He is recently mented PhD from Indiana University in the Department of Political Science. He's currently a research associate at the University of Pittsburgh. His dissertation touched on conceptualizations of the state in the history of American political science. And you can find his writings in places like Descent, Jacobin, Logos, and many other dusty academic journals. Raphael, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Pundit Society. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been uh, teasing my audience for some weeks now about this episode that we're going to be doing on uh, Marxist or neo-Marxian state theory. I've had some listeners sort of remind me, re- you know, recently that, like, come on, you know, stop teasing us. Let's give us the goods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff. Yeah, so both you and I have a pretty extensive background in state theory. At least it's a, it's an interest of mine. Your your background is far more uh, authorized at this point, being a, a recent PhD than mine. So I'm excited to talk about this stuff. So just in short, you know, um, you had a piece that appeared in Logos. Mm-hmm. I'll post that up on the show notes, and I think it's really good and it's accessible. You don't you don't hold any punches in terms of being you know, involved in academic debates, but it's widely accessible. You integrate uh, recent politics and other types of movements that people will be familiar with. And in that piece, you it's called On Thinking With and Against the State. I'll put that up on the show notes for listeners to check out. But you really preface the entire piece indicating that Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and the kind of excitement that that sort of flourished around that project, leading to the explosive uh, growth in DSA, for example, has really reinvigorated debates that you you write uh, that make it important for those in favor of progressive social change to once again consider how to approach the state. Do we understand it as a bulwark against neoliberalism? Is it a repressive apparatus to be smashed? Is it perhaps an institution to be systematically democratized or is it something else entirely? End quote. So uh, mm-hmm. I won't make you answer all these questions right up front. We'll be considering those throughout the show. But tell us a little bit about uh, this political moment and why you think that uh, it's important to bring the state back into the debate. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. Um I think that this is actually a very, very exciting political moment for the left um, just, you know, in the last year or two. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why, and maybe the re- main reason, is because the left is now organizing in a way that seemed inconceivable just, you know, 10 years ago. Um, we, you know, the growth of DSA that you mentioned is one such moment. Um, and because of that, we are actively sort of, I think, reengaging with certain tactical and strategic debates about how um, democratic movements on the left should uh, approach this question of state power. Um, you know, in a way that perhaps, again, 10, 15 years ago, there was this, I think, um, tendency to reject the state offhand and to focus primarily on local movements and, you know, cultivating local community power. Whereas now, um, because um, the left has grown, it actually has to grapple with, I think, fairly difficult questions of, you know, how do we approach existing institutions? Um, how do we um, orient ourselves strategically towards them in order to, you know, see the kind of more democratic society that we that we want to see. So it's exciting. It's also, I think, opens a series of new challenges that we um, don't necessarily have easy answers to. And I think part of the, you know, this 
problem that I alluded to in the title of my article of, you know, we have to think with the state. We, we have to think of, um, you know, in terms of what is concretely there in, in institutional capacities, but also to think it in a more critical manner um, as to how we approach it. Yeah, well said. So I think um, I'm going to uh, make explicit something that you sort of uh, implicitly threw in there for our audience. Uh, maybe one of the key touchstones you, you, you were pointing to um, in the erasure of the state or perhaps the ignorance of the state in maybe, say, the early 2000s was Hart Negri, uh, Hart Negri's mm -hmm. empire in particular, which was very popular, uh, certainly in academic circles. It even made its way, had some notoriety in activist circles around the anti-globalization uh, movement of, uh, you know, 99 and 2000 and thereafter. Mm -hmm. uh, but empire, uh, that, that, that thesis uh, really fell apart in the wake of 9-11 when states reasserted themselves and then maybe even more so uh, following the Great Recession when you saw the Fed and uh, sovereign states bailing out banks and financial institutions and then, of course, the sovereign debt crisis that would follow thereafter. So mm -hmm. let's start. Let's start with a history of the present before we jump back uh, to you know dusty old folks like Marx and Engels. Uh, what do you make of? I mean, so what I mean to say is, there's been a significant reassertion of the state, even in the last fifteen some odd years. So maybe you know, let's start there and let's spell that out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think reassertion is a really good way of putting it because. Um, you know, if you think about what the 90s meant, for example, for the left, the left was in the retreat. You had 1989 and the kind of end of history thesis. Um, you had um, the left feeling that it needed to adapt itself to, um, on, on one hand, a kind of um, centrist progressivism. On the other hand, um, an assertion of neo-anarchistic ways of building community power, um, focusing primarily on the local and rejecting the state as something not to be engaged with. And then, of course, as you said, 9-11 really challenged that entire paradigm. Um, the left, of course, was still very much in retreat at that point. But it, with 9-11, you have this assertion of certain sovereign prerogatives on the part of the state, um, you know, particularly the executive branch here in, in America, the, the reliance on executive orders, things like um, detainment of individuals without habeas corpus, suspension of certain rights and liberties, right. which the, kind of – The torture memos. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're speaking of yeah. there? The torture memos that came out that sort of justified executive exception perhaps, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, in political theory, you have this you have this new concern with the state of exception, right? Um, mm -hmm. The kind of uh, rising interest in analysis of sovereignty by Carl Schmitt, by Giorgio Agamben, by some of these other thinkers. And then, of course – just a few years later, you have the war in Iraq, and then you have the uh, economic crisis that began unfolding in 2007, um, which then highlights the economic role of the state in managing the social order. So, you know, within the span of a decade, you have um, sort of both capacities of the state reasserting themselves, the, the capacity of the state to, you know, claim the monopoly on legitimate violence and to decide on what is and is not an exceptional situation in terms of politics and security. And then, of course, the responsibility that the state asserts within, you know, modern capitalist societies of maintaining some kind of economic stability. So just really quickly, well, I want to I want to front load this episode with a defense for the topic, but I don't want to bury that in the end. Uh, so tell us just in, in, in a word, we're going to come back to this over and over again and develop it with more uh, ever increasingly uh, richer detail. But, mm -hmm. but just give us a quick pitch like 
why the state? Why is the state something that the left should should be concerned about? Because there, you know, there's an element of the communist left certainly who sort of feels that the state it will will simply wither away uh, once capitalism uh, is overthrown. Uh, there's a, there's another element that I've noticed is gaining a lot of steam recently, uh, which is kind of like a vaguely uh, libertarian, socialist, libertarian, communist, you know, anarcho-syndicalist perhaps. But the syndicalists are perhaps even more happy to talk about the state than a lot of the libertarian socialists that I've seen recently who just mm -hmm. want to reject it and talk, they want to talk about horizontalism. They want to talk about localism. And the state is just this repressive apparatus that, that goes hand in hand with capital that just needs to be abolished. So tell us why it is that we should care about the state and why developing a theory of the state in this moment is so crucial. Well, I think simply put, it's that the, the question of the state is the question of political power. Um, I think it's very difficult to talk about political power in any sense without engaging with the structures of power that currently exist. So whether you know you like it or not, um, the state and state apparatuses are a very much a political reality for all of modern societies. And you know I would push back against this tendency to assume that the state is simply going to wither away because you know as as let's say like a superstructure that sits atop certain kinds of economic or productive relations. Because we've seen, for example, in the historical example of the Soviet Union, where you did have a revolution in the um, relations of production, but you did not have the withering away of the state that corresponded to it. If anything, the state apparatus became even more top-loaded and bureaucratized. So, so I think the state poses a distinct political problem that we have to engage with for these reasons. Well said. That's a really great way to preface the argument. And of course, we're going to delve into that much deeper as we go on into the episode. So you brought up a really key word there. You you said uh, a nice piece of jargon that I think my audience is very smart. I don't take anything away from them. So they, they don't miss much, but uh, so they picked up on it, I know. But you said superstructure. Uh, so let's, that's a good place. That's a good signal. And, and you're really helping me transition here. So let's go all the way back. We, we've, we've done a history of the present really briefly. So we're going to take it back to the beginning. Now, in, in your uh, academic writing, you indicate that American political science was really a, an outgrowth of right-wing Hegelian philosophy, political philosophy, in, in terms of a lot of the founders, the founding fathers of American political science were educated mm -hmm. in German universities, which was the case in phil phil uh, philosophy and sociology and all of that uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, they, you know, mm -hmm. There weren't any major prestigious universities in the United States at that time. If you had money, means, and uh, you were upwardly mobile, perhaps you'd go over to Germany uh, in many cases to get your uh, higher education. Um, and so a lot of those folks brought their right-wing Hegelianism over to the United States. But let's, let's, let's put that to the side unless you think that Hegel has something really important to say about the state – and let's jump to uh, some appropriators of Hegel and cri critics of Hegel, that's uh, being Marx and Engels. And you mentioned base and superstructure, so that might be a good place to go. Um, also maybe touch on the most famous statement uh, that Marx and Engels ever made on the state, which I think is a little unfortunate. But that's to be found in the, in the Communist Manifesto, where they refer to the state as the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. So maybe delineate some of those things uh, coming out of Marx and Engels for us. Sure. So the relationship between base and superstructure is, you know, one of the 
the key metaphors by which Marxist political thought has been um, defined. And, you know, it's one of the, the kind of lasting legacies of Marxism. Marx, you know, rarely used um, those same metaphors, although his 1859 uh, preface to the critique of political economy, um, which is a, you know, very, fairly short essay, it's only a few pages long, you know, uh, has that as a central aspect of it. But basically, um, the way that the base superstructure relationship has been theorized is that there is a certain primacy to the mode of production. The, that is the the way that a society organizes its dominant uh, relationships of producing the resources that human beings need to sustain themselves. So, um, you know, food, shelter, general uh, social wealth, which becomes more and more of a priority in the capitalist mode of production. But um, on top of those, so if you think of it as a kind of uh, vertical metaphor, you have superstructures such as um, primarily the state and the kind of legal juridical system that the state, you know, captures in its totality, um, as well as culture, the arts, music, dominant ideologies, and um, basically sort of more spiritual or you could say intangible phenomena that Marx argues previous philosophers had mistaken for the actual essence of human development. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe where Hegel comes in, perhaps. You can maybe say uh, where Hegel sort of positioned himself on that with respect to the state and, and Marx's critique of that. Would that be an appropriate place to bring that in? Uh, no, absolutely. Um, because, you know, one of the, the ways that Marx presents his relationship to Hegel is to stand Hegel on his feet, making the argument that Hegel was correct in seeing that there was a certain progressive development, or at least unfolding of certain human relations, but that he mistook the development of the spirit or Geist as the, uh, the underlying force rather than actual productive relations. Um, and since you mentioned the uh, kind of right-wing Hegelians that were very influential for American political science in the late uh, 1800s, uh, many of them actually used the term the state to denote something that would consider to be a cultural or spiritual totality of, of a peoples or a nation as they kind of undergo a progressive historical development from tribal society to city-states and eventually to the modern nation-state. So there was this kind of a, I argue, a substantial Hegelian element to to the origins of thinking about the state in America during that time. Interesting, and that, and that and that not to get too far off topic here, we'll return to Marx and Engels specifically in just a moment. But this is relevant because you argue uh, quite persuasively. I think your major contribution here is to say that actually state state theories, theories and conceptions of the state are not just ideas, right? That people sort of come up with, but they they are intertwined with the political uh, moment of, of that time. And so you, you mm -hmm. sort of indicate then that these right Hegelians who are coming over from Germany and, and instituting this uh, disciplinary apparatus of political science in the U.S., that they, that they develop that kind of cultural spiritualist notion of the state as a collectivity of people and, and the development thereof uh, as, as a project of nation building, right? That the, the United, the, this American state is beginning to define itself. Um, and it's it's beginning to try to understand itself as a, as a collective entity. So, what role do you think uh, that that plays uh, for this? So, what was going on in uh, the United States during this time was that the country was recovering from a devastating civil war, and what the what these scholars wanted to do was to envision a new national unity that could transcend previously existing divisions within 
American society. And one of the ways that they did that was then to posit the state as a metaphor that would unify the nation, the American nation, by emphasizing certain common um, elements that, you know, cultural elements that people shared. And of course, the American state was still fairly weak at that point in time, you know, compared to its 20th century manifestation. So uh, in a way, they were, I, I argue that what they were doing had a performative element to it, in the sense that they posited something that was not quite in existence at the moment, in order then to see it through in a partially by, you know, even um, political science programs in the United States functioning as training grounds for civil servants. So for future practitioners of, of the state as a discipline. Interesting. So it kind of espouses an aspirational goal uh, for, mm -hmm. for what the state would become, what the American state would become and how people who are trained in uh, this discipline uh, would sort of envision their role uh, in, in developing these institutions. And as you rightly point to, we'll, we'll, we'll probably come back to this because we're getting a little out of the timeline and that's my fault, but, uh, you can't talk about one thing without talking about everything. That's the way this goes. So, uh, but a lot of their progeny, if you will, the second generation you point to were the ones who developed these robust and much stronger, um, progressive era institutions, uh, in the, in the American context. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. The it, with the progressive era, then you have this this new problem of um, not only how do we you know how do we create the state as an idea and convince people that it's actually there, but how do we actively apply state institutions to the shaping of society in a way that you know aligns with our own self conception of democracy and of republicanism? So you have a kind of um, I think a progressive acceptance of the reality of the state, while Interestingly enough, later on, they stopped talking about the state, but we can get back to that at some other point and return to Marx now if you want. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I wanted to jump ahead because I wanted to spell this out for people, right? That this is not that the conceptions of the state that you, you, you consistently draw our attention in your writings to. And I, I love this about that. The conceptions of the state are, are intimately intertwined uh, with, and they coincide necessarily with the kind of political uh, class. Uh, cultural, social demands and and, and aspirations, in, indeed, as you point to, uh, of that time. And so let's take, I wanted to point that out by, by, you know, in the American context, but let's go back to Marx and Engels here. So you pointed to the base and superstructure model. It's something that's attributed to Marx. Uh, there are people, particularly the political Marxists, if people know about the political Marxists, Ellen Mason's Wood, George Comnell, Robert Brenner, Bob Brenner, they sort of say, ah, oh, yeah, that was kind of a throwaway line by Marx, right? Like he talked about the different modes of production. There was the slave mode of production, the feudal mode of production, and then now there's capitalism. And so the mode of production is the base. And then the superstructure arises on top of the base, which, as you pointed to, is this kind of cultural, legal, political, spiritual apparatus that sort of sits on top. It's, as you say, it's, a, it's sort of a vertically structured model. Mm -hmm. But that's really something that was taken up by by early Marxists in, in a really uh, important way. First of all, I think maybe because it was just a sort of easy thing to, to understand, to conceptualize, right? It also drives uh, certain conceptions about like – Okay, so if this is what the state looks like, if it's a base and superstructure, which is the state, sits on top of the base, well, then what you need to do then is you need to attack the base and the superstructure will crumble. So it also implies – what I'm getting at is it, it implies certain tactical positions as well. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that? 
Yeah. So um, I, I think that uh, by the you know late 19th century, you have a gradual acceptance of this kind of model. And, you know, people later on, people would argue whether this was really there in Marx or whether this is kind of a result of Engels, you know, interpretation of Marx that then took hold within German social democracy during the 1880s, 1890s. And uh, but essentially, the as you said, the the basic thrust of that was that there's an underlying material basis to society, which requires a socialist movement to, you know, consolidate certain political power. And for example, as you have with the growth of German social democracy um, during the uh, 1890s, but it allows them to sort of hesitate on this question of when is the decisive moment by which the political transformation will take place. Um, it allows them to sort of bide their time until the conditions of um, the, the material and social conditions of reproduction are, you know, ripe for that kind of moment, mm -hmm. which people argue was also then, um, as a result, a kind of moderated German social democracy into this ever-present weight rather than active seizure of, of political power, which is then what you would have with the Leninist tradition later on. Right. Well said. I like that you brought us there because the, the one of the necessary outgrowths, I think people too readily jump they draw a straight line from Marx and Engels directly to Lenin. Mm -hmm. They leave out that experience of social democracy, of early social democracy, in some cases Marxian yeah. social democracy, or um, some of the other figures that we can get to. Uh, so Karl Kautsky, it was sort of the Pope of Marxism, the sort of uh, heir apparent to Engels once Engels passed away. Um, and mm -hmm. Kautsky, as you as you rightly point to, sort of reformulates Marxism and establishes an institutional stronghold in Germany, in the German Social Democratic Party. And there's all kinds of contradictions that uh, arise from the institutionalization of class politics, right? Once you have that party, the maintenance of the party suddenly finds itself at the head of everyone's concerns. And I think we've all been there, right? I think folks in DSA in, in some respects can, can, can kind of, I mean, if, if you don't sympathize with this in DSA, then you're not paying attention, right? Sure. Because <laughs> there's something about, there's something about whenever you institutionalize a movement, right? You find that the pressures and the material constraints of institutionalization will begin to assert themselves, Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I think the politics, you know, tell me if you think I'm right about this. I think the politics of the German Social Democratic Party and Karl Kautsky were really altered by that institutionalization, uh, which Lenin would seize on that later, right, with the adoption of war credits uh, by the German Social Democrats. And so maybe what's, what's your take on that? I mean, this is something that's relatively new. There were there was the first international, right? I mean, but it was a loose confederation and it broke apart pretty easily in the end mm -hmm. uh, due to internal conflicts between Bakunin and Marx and, and other folks, LaSalle, the French, uh, who are always sort of up to no good, <laughs> according to Marx. Uh, but the Second International was this new thing, and it really gained institutional permanence in a certain way. So what, what do you make of that second manifestation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, um, it's really easy to forget just how robust of a movement the Second International was. And I think in some ways it's actually gotten an unfortunate historical legacy attached to it, um, you know, precisely because of the war. But actually, uh, so, you know, to, to come back, for example, to Engels and this question of political strategy, um, Engels was, uh, I think, somewhat annoyed with Kautsky because 
his uh, one of Engels' later texts was edited by the German Social Democrats to make him seem as if he was a supporter of uh, the kind of peaceful parliamentary road to to socialism and then to communism. Whereas, you know, Engels kind of always emphasized that there needed to be a radical rupture or break with the parliamentary tradition. Mm-hmm. But bracketing that aside, German social democracy was very successful. Um, they, you know, they went from being a party that was outlawed under the Bismarck regime to a party eventually, you know, in a couple of decades to being the party that had the most seats in, in the German parliament. Um, so that in itself was, I think, a significant historical change. Um, but you're right that there was always a tension um, between the actual practices of of the SPD and its sort of broad political goal. So um, in the Erfurt program of 1891, mm-hmm. um, they still posit socialism and revolution as their, their ultimate goal. But um, in terms of their practices, um, there's, uh, you know, their practices were always a lot more moderate than their stated goals were. And I think that this is Again, this it kind of leads us back to this question of how the left should approach institutional power, because I don't see that there's a very apparent solution to what, you know, and I think, you know, sticking to one or the other of these poles is going to um, lead to problems later on. But I think the trick is to how to navigate between these two poles or hold them constantly in tension, which, I mean, you know, because of the war, we never really know what the legacy of the SPD would have been. And, you know, a lot of things changed by the, were changed by that historical event, but it would have been interesting to see how the SPD would have progressed otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back. I mean, I think that uh, you mentioned that Engels uh, was constantly at odds with Kautsky and some of the other German social democrats because he was really upholding the legacy of the First International uh, and they really did kind of see a more uh, radical break with capitalism, an insurrectionary kind of uh, revolt, right? With, uh, you know, perhaps the Paris Commune being kind of like the vision, of course, of course, with the amendments <laughs> that Marx makes uh, following the defeat of the Paris Commune, right? Uh, yeah. Being that you can't just take up the machinery, the existing state machinery, you have to sort of, uh, you know, change it and alter it and wield it for yourself, for the working class. Um, mm-hmm. So you can say something about that if you'd like. But what I'm getting at is that it seems like, as with all conceptions of the state, as you rightly point to, Kautsky and the German SPD, their conception of the state is going to alter because of material, you know, concerns, because of pressing material concerns, which in their cases, now it's really difficult to uphold Marx and Engels' formulation in the manifesto that the state is the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. It's hard Mm -hmm. to uphold that when the German Social Democratic Party, with all of their labor unions and all that kind of stuff, hold a significant portion of the parliament. It's it would at least it would at least force one to have a more nuanced conception about you know working class integration into the state machinery. Uh, so so what what's your take on that? And what is what is what is Kautsky and maybe even Bernstein? We haven't talked about Bernstein yet, but yeah, uh, what, what do they do with the Marxian formulation of the state in, in the Second International? Yeah, so um, that's a big question, but I think uh, the. With Marx, you have a more or less consistent um, emphasis on the, nece- the you know the necessity for a radical rupture, a revolutionary transformation of the existing state machinery. Mm-hmm. So, um, with the Paris Commune, of course, one of the 
significant elements of it is for is the abolition of the standing army, right? Is you have a Republican moment where people, the people themselves take up arms and, you know, stand to protect what this kind of political ground that they've staked out. Mm -hmm. um, so Marx and Engels, you know, constantly grappled with this question of what do we do with the bureaucracy? What do we do about the standing army as, you know, the two of the most typical manifestations of the way that the state, as they said, stands above society or positions itself above society and is essentially parasitic upon it. Um, with with Kautsky and with uh, German social democracy, you have a strategic shift where the party then is able to infiltrate certain state institutions, namely the German parliament, in order then to change the relationship within the within it and the existing state institutions. So basically, later critics would write that German social democracy suffered from an instrumentalist understanding of the state, hmm. where basically you could occupy a certain state institution or take hold of it and use that state institution to socialist ends without really understanding how the, the structural constraints of that institution are going to transform your party, hmm. what your party then sees as feasible versus unfeasible in terms of this larger goal of socialism, and without appreciating the amount of resistance that that party is going to see from other state institutions that are completely hostile to socialist goals, for example, from the army, which could potentially lead to a kind of Bonapartist or, you know, even fascist coup. Sure, um, sure. And, you know, from the active mobilization of of uh, the bourgeoisie just within the conservative parties in the parliament. So um, so they would they argued that German social democracy kind of relied too, too much on a not only a linear vision of history, but also a linear vision of the relationship between economics and politics, where because the social relations of production favored the advancement of socialism, that would and neatly correspond to the success of socialism and politics, which was not the case ultimately. Very well said. That was a very complex question, as you as you rightly pointed to, but you handled that very well. I, I like I like your formulation there. I mean, it's, it seems like we're we're really uh, we're 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 previewing some of the critiques of the state and the instrumentalism and stuff like that that that, that it will come later on down the road in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one way to look at this, perhaps, and this is very relevant to say the case in Greece, and 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 the failures, unfortunately, of of some of the hopeful uh, sparks and shoots of socialism that, that have happened in the last several years. I mean, you might say that Kautsky and the German SPD suffered under the same problem, which is to say that you either change the state or the state changes you. Yeah, that might be that might be a really good way to look at this. Uh, and and unfortunately, if you don't understand how or you don't have the capacities to alter the state and that it's its relationship to the various classes in the, in the economy, then the state will change you. Uh, and that seems to have befallen Kautsky and uh, his comrades in the German SPD when they adopted war credits uh, leading up to World War One, which threw the German. Uh, workers' Party wholeheartedly into an imperialist, an inter-imperialist war, which mm -hmm. then kicked off a whole host of polemical <laughs> exchanges from Lenin, among uh, many others. So maybe spell that moment, spell that uh, transition out for us a little bit. Sure. Um, 
so you know the main contribution of Lenin to these to these debates is to reassert the importance of the state as a coercive power and a coercive instrument in the hands of of the dominant class and the ruling class, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, Lenin, of course, cut his teeth on these a lot of these internal polemics within the Russian social democratic movement um, during the turn of the century, but throughout he emphasized this coercive capacity of the state uh basically that uh russian social democracy you know should opportunistically try to assert its its power within existing state institutions if it can um but it should never lose sight of the the fact that at some point you do need a kind of that there's going to be a moment of reckoning right where mm-hmm. you're going to have a situation of dual power as you did in Russia in 1917 between the Petrograd Soviet and the provisional government. Mm-hmm. And sooner or later, you are going to have um, this clash where, uh, because the situation of dual power is unsustainable. So really, Lenin argues that Kautsky and Bernstein, among others, were doing a, a disservice to, to the works of Marx and Engels by writing out the, you know, the real revolutionary implications of, of their writings and trying to tame them and you know, turn them essentially into good social democrats when they were something much more than that. Interesting. So maybe it would be a good time to spell out some of the differences here because I think I I think I mean I I agree with uh, Lenin's broad critique of the Germans um and there were significant failures. I mean if folks in my audience who have read up on uh, the failed German revolution uh they folks will at least perhaps know the fate of Rosa Luxemburg and uh, her comrades during that time and afterwards. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how Rosa fits into this because she's a, a, a luminary and an important figure in, in a lot of the debates during that time. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the key difference here, because we're, we're getting back to sort of the material political implications of state theoretical orientations, and that we would we'd really be remiss in failing to acknowledge that Lenin's context, as you say, he cut his teeth on these sort of Russian – he was a very international kind of guy. He was a you know, European kind of guy, right? He had to come in on a train uh, in 1917 because he had been in exile and, and, and in countries all across uh, Europe and the UK. But his context was clearly Russia, which was czarist. It was, uh, you know, authoritarian to the nth degree. It was a feudal agrarian society in large part. Of course, there were sort of burgeoning industrial sectors, uh, but they were relatively small and marginal in the in the broader economic, uh, you know, scale of production in Russia. Now, uh, contrast that with Kautsky's environment, which is this industrializing, uh, advanced democracy, at least relatively speaking, in that moment in Germany. So you have industrial production, um, you have an advanced democracy. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, how far along they were, you know, we can talk about that. We can quarrel about, well, actually, there was a passive revolution that happened in Germany during World War I where the Junkers were all slaughtered. And and that actually is what brought in real capitalism. And there wasn't actually real industrial capitalism in Germany. And if I'm losing people, ignore what I just said. Those are some of the hot debates in political Marxism and elsewhere and in, in brainy, dusty IR theory and, you know, German uh, yep. politics. But uh, if you're interested, you know, dive in. It's they, These are interesting debates about was it capitalism, was it not? But nonetheless, maybe spell out the differences between the two contexts between Lenin and Kautsky and maybe how that drove uh, their differences and how they oriented their state theory. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think you you captured a good amount of it when you point to the different uh, levels of economic development in uh, in Russia versus versus Germany, right? So, um, if we were to take some interpretations of Marx and Engels at their word, then um, the place where one could reasonably expect a uh, transition to socialism would be in Germany rather than in Russia, which was the you know the most backwards of the of um, you know the so-called European chain of imperialist nations um, around the turn of the 20th century and during the war, but the implications of that basically you know led Lenin to believe that it was it was futile to try to um, infiltrate the state because the state was not simply an entity that could reconcile class antagonisms, as Bernstein and even Kautsky to some extent believed, but rather it was a force that stood above society and per angles, it increasingly separated itself from society. Hmm. And of course you have, you see that with the Tsarist bureaucracy, which was, you know, one of the most top loaded bureaucracies in the country, uh, in Europe at the moment. Um, you have um, the kind of stifling of civil society and you, uh, at the time, and you have uh, with the kind of close collaboration between the Tsarist bureaucracy and the kind of leading industrial sectors of the Russian bourgeoisie. So Lenin basically, seeing all this, argues in State and Revolution, which 1917, that we need to forget about sort of infiltrating the state. We need to consider the state essentially as a special organization of uh, armed men. Mm-hmm. who are the product of this irreconcilable antagonism between social classes. So the implication then is that whereas Kautsky would see the, the task of the proletariat being to take over the bourgeois state, and then gradually the state withers away by virtue of the presence of socialist forces within the state institutions, for Lenin, you have a kind of two-stage moment where first you have the proletarian revolution, and then once the uh, the state is seized and he is very you know emphatic about that. Then only then do you have the possible withering of the proletariat state through the kind of revolutionary policies that that will be put in. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, uh, essentially, you're right to say that. Oh, I think Lenin probably won that battle. Uh, certainly, the German Social Democratic Party went in for the war credits. They went headlong uh, to their demise, by the way, into an inter-imperialist war, which is World War One, and uh, they really lost a lot of ground in, in doing so, and they never really recovered um, in, in a variety of ways. And so, Lenin, in, in the in the uh, you know annals of history, has won that debate at least in practice. Yeah, although that there's um, there's sympathy among uh, some you know sectors of DSA for the kind of second legacy of the second international. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I, I think that, you know, that's one of the things that, um, DSA is going to have to debate internally within the coming years as to, you know, what kind of strategy, whether, you know, it's reasonable to emulate the second international strategy, um, in the present day context. So we'll see. It's a question that's still open, I think. Yeah. I mean, that, that's well put. I probably overstated that. Um, I myself am far more, uh, uh you know, interested in the kind of approach that Kautsky has, I would say, um, given the kind of trans, you know, the transformation in um, the capitalist state that we will talk about in the neo-Marxian debate. But but I think there are probably better ways to access that than just going straight back to Kautsky. I think you probably agree with that. I think there are more yeah. robust uh, ways to deal with yeah, those sure. problems than to just say, yes, let's 
let's read Kautsky and do what he did. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, most of us have a pretty reasonable conception of what would happen in Russia in trying to achieve uh, following the the civil war there and the the invasion of of, of you know what was it, to, uh, over a dozen foreign armies on Russian soil. They finally defeated the bourgeois imperialist forces and had to establish socialism in one country. Mm-hmm. So the legacy of Leninism uh, really suffered, I would say, under the structural historical constraints of having to, uh, you know, leave behind the, the the internationalist communist world communist system that never really came to fruition. And they had to settle for communism in one country. Um, but but that, that's that's a fertile ground for our next uh, figure, which is we haven't brought up yet, which is Trotsky. Leon Trotsky was a uh, pivotal you know actor in the Russian Revolution. He led the Red Army. What does Trotsky have to say about this? Because certainly the legacy of Trotskyism and their their theories of the state and their strategic orientation looms large on the American left. So talk to us about Trotsky. Yeah. So uh, Trotsky, of course, has has had a long legacy in uh, the history of 20th century Marxism, for obvious reasons more so in the United States rather than in in Russia. Um, But, you know, he, of course, followed Lenin in some of these aspects, the discussion of dual power as a as a situation that needs to be overcome one way or the other um, with the advancement of, you know, revolutionary forces um, and the, this kind of ongoing conception of politics as a as warfare. Later on, of course, in the 30s, he became very critical of the development of the Soviet Union under Stalin, which he essentially saw as, you know, manifesting the worst elements of bureaucratic collectivism. He saw Stalinism as a new form of uh, Bonapartism. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know, the other contribution that I think is making a comeback is uh, this idea of combined and uneven development, where we we can no longer sort of anticipate that the most economically advanced nations are also going to be the ones most ripe for revolutionary situations. So it's not necessarily the the places where capitalism is most advanced and most forward-looking that is the most fertile ground for revolution, but rather that everything is kind of overdetermined by a number of forces uh, the place of the country within the broader networks of economic development and the so-called imperialist chain mm-hmm. and uh, various political and cultural and social legacies that are already in place. Um, so all of this kind of combines to create a, a revolutionary situation in some aspects, but maybe kind of a potential for reaction in others. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, uneven combined development is something that looms large on the, in the academic, uh, in many academic circles. Those of us who uh, spend too much time with dusty books will have come across it for sure. Um, but it seems to be, I mean, correct me here, I'm, I'm a little shady on it, to be honest with you, but it seems to be an attempt to sort of revivify uh, the possibility of sort of a radical break of sorts, which is to say that even though a country is a little bit, I don't want to say backward because that implies a teleological development, although it's kind of hard to avoid with Trotsky. So I'll go ahead and say it. Even though a country is a little bit economically or politically backwards compared to the more advanced capitalist juggernauts of the world, that doesn't mean that they can't undergo a radical um, and fairly swift uh, political and economic transformation. Am, am I getting that right? 
Yeah, uh, I think so. Um, I would also, you know, say that this this kind of um, emphasis, and you have it in in Lenin as well. Um, you know, re-emphasizes the political element of of Marxist thought, um, or rather, you could say maybe the strategic or tactical element, mm. um, because a lot sort of hinges then on the capacity to mobilize political forces and to um, you know, act in the conjuncture, so to speak. Um, so you, Lenin and Trotsky are kind of seen as um, points of a, of a break with the previous tradition that we discussed, which is social, you know, German social democracy, second international um, economism, so to speak. Um, but, but yeah, that's, I think that that's uh, an important element of this thinking about combined and even development as well. Interesting. So let's 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 take a step backwards. We're missing. I don't I don't want to skip over Rosa Rosa Luxemburg. She's a she's a prominent figure. She has a lot of really interesting things to say. Not so much about the state, but about imperialism. And she has a a very a potent critique of the of the single party state that she predicted uh, would arise in Russia should the Bolsheviks uh, be be successful. What do, what do you take uh, as as Rosa Luxemburg's uh, primary contribution, uh, both in that moment and w- what's the kind of uh, import uh, of her thinking for our time? Yeah, um, well, I mean, her thinking has been, um, you know, ha- there's been interest in her thought for for a little while now, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's it's interesting because she, you know, developed one of the most prominent, I think, democratic critiques of Leninism out of all of his contemporaries in the sense that um, she argued that the kinds of policies that you saw emerging in Russia under the Bolsheviks around 1917, 1918, so immediately after the revolution, um, would lead to the um, emergence of a kind of um, centralized party uh, in control of the Tsarist state apparatus that the Bolsheviks kind of inherited, Mm -hmm. um, but really did not work substantially to transform, um, especially, you know, you, we could argue that this was because of the ongoing civil war, the kind of conditions that um, the party found themselves in, where it was easier for them to to take hold of, of existing state institutions and to use them for their own capacity rather than to radically transform them. Mm-hmm. But um, but with Luxembourg's critique, then you, you, um, you have this argument that it's, that it's not only the party, um, but also um, uh, that it's equally important to have channels for the participation of the masses um, on a broader scale. So councils as one thing that should not be abolished in favor simply of the democratic centralism of, you know, of, um, of the party that Lenin advocated. All right. So we've covered all of the luminaries leading up to World War One and thereafter, after the Russian Revolution. We got Marx and Engels, we got Kalsky, Bernstein, Lenin, Luxembourg, Trotsky. There's some other figures in there that we could have brought in. And some I know folks have their pet theorists or their pet, uh, you know, Bolsheviks or whomever. They're <laughs> going to be mad that we didn't cover, you know. Yeah, uh, why why yeah. didn't you do, uh, yeah, or Bukharin. Where's Bukharin? Or yeah. where, you know, I mean, sure, maybe Bukharin deserves a place. Um, mm-hmm. Who's to say? Uh, but uh, but we're going to leave all that behind for now. And we're going to jump to a figure who straddles the line historically in a somewhat paradoxical sense. That's Antonio Gramsci, mm-hmm. who was an Italian communist who, who who is very much a contemporary of all of the people that we just mentioned. Uh, but that context is oftentimes lost 
Uh, and, and Gramsci is really treated as a contemporary figure. And there are good reasons for that. Gramsci's notion of the state as the, the integral, integral state and hegemony has a lot of resonances with the kind of uh, state formations that we still live under today. And so that, that's probably why he has such a contemporary resonance. But politically speaking, I mean, he was really embedded in the Third International in, in that context. He was a Leninist um, in, in many senses. And so tell us who uh, Antonio Gramsci was and maybe embed uh, him in his historical context for us. Sure. Um, so Gramsci is really interesting because, you know, out of all the Marxists of the the period that we're covering, so pre-World War II Marxists, he is the one who, whose, I think, legacy has been um, most well-received among, you know, contemporary academics, but also just in general, sort of, you know, political discourse, right? So uh, he, in, in many ways, he's seen as a bridge between the Marxism of Lenin and Trotsky and the Marxism of um, Althusser and uh, the Frankfurt School and contemporary cultural studies, right? right. Um, so as you pointed out, for example, this notion of hegemony is something that is a fairly frequent part of leftist discourse for reasons we can talk about later. But, uh, but Gramsci, yes, Gramsci was a leading figure in the Italian Communist Party. He was you know, a leading theoretician of the time. Most of his writings, of course, were, um, or the writings that he's most known for come out of the prison notebooks, which were composed during uh, his lengthy incarceration in, uh, over the course of the 1930s under the Mussolini regime, so where he died uh, towards the end of um, the 30s, not long after being released out of prison. Um, but Gramsci is interesting, I think, because there you get a sense of um, this base and superstructure problematic that we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation um, starts to get rethought or reworked with this idea of the integral state. That is the state that's not simply an entity that's superimposed upon civil society or the relations of production, but rather it's a state that actively performs an educational function and a legitimating function for the reproduction of the social totality as a whole. Mm-hmm. So spell it. Let's let's talk about hegemony being the key kind of buzzword. I use it on this show quite often. Uh, sometimes I'm using it in a more technical sense. Uh, sometimes I'm using it just kind of in a in a more kind of uh, you know everyday kind of sense. I've alluded oftentimes when I've teased people with this state theory episode, it's been when I've brought up hegemony in the technical sense, and I say, "Don't worry, folks. If you're confused by that, I'll explain it later." So now is the time. We're going to get into the nitty gritty of hegemony. Uh, what is it? How does it work? And uh, maybe bring into to, to play this distinction between the war of position and the war of maneuver. And I know that the, I even get that confused even to this day sometimes. So I know my guests will. So let's let's spell that distinction out as, as carefully as we can. And I, I know you're the man to do it. So let's see what you got. How, how can you explain that to to the neophytes and the uh, the veterans alike? Sure. Um, well, I guess we can, the easiest way to think about this is if we consider what, if we first ask, what is the basis of uh, a social order, right? So if we follow Marx in saying that something like the state is really the executive committee of the bourgeoisie, or in in, 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 in any sense that the state enacts the preferences of the most economically dominant class, um, why is it that revolution has not happened? Or what is it that allows most people, especially in the kind of contemporary democratic context, um, where arguably 
you know, people have a greater voice of, and participate to a greater degree than ever before, what prevents revolution from happening? What prevents people from seeing their true interests uh, come to light? Um, and Gramsci develops this idea of hegemony um, primarily as um, as a way for the working class to build their own power, but also as a way to understand the kinds of relations of legitimation and consent that emanate from the dominant uh, the dominant classes and the way that the way that they perpetuate themselves as being seen legitimate in the eyes of the dominate. Um, so hegemony I typically associate with terms like consent and legitimation. Mm-hmm. Um, basically to try to understand this complex dynamic of the relationship between revolutionary politics and the social order. So let me let me try to refine that to see if I'm if I can sort of uh, distill that for our audience and for myself. So it's really a concern. So the base and superstructure model, as well as maybe the Lenin, you know, Lenin's uh, model and some, and all of the others that precede it, just sort of presuppose one of two things. You either suppose that that people's relationship to the state is kind of a detached one that the state sort of functions externally and it coerces you to do things from the outside, but it never, it doesn't really enter your soul to put it in one way, right? You never really internalize the state. It doesn't really play. It doesn't structure your life in a material sense. You sort of have an independent existence as a worker, as a member of the working class outside of the bourgeois, bourgeois, the state that's controlled by the bourgeoisie. That's one way to look at it. Or the second way is perhaps that, well, of course, that's not possible. Of course, we internalize the state. But then the question is, how does that happen? Um, and it seems like what you're describing there is Gramsci's trying to explain like how it is that individual subjects become like themselves, you know, irreversibly intertwined with the state. Does that does that sound like the right kind of problematic? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting that you bring in this um this question of the the subject and uh, you know the subject the assumption of the subject as a given within um, contemporary liberal democracy or mm-hmm. you know modern ways of thinking about politics right so um, the assumption is that we have a kind of car for ourselves we have um, a space of interior interiority where our subjectivity resides and where um, the that in some ways is always, you know, resistant to outside encroachment. So there's a space for autonomy. There's a space for uh, personal decision making that something like the state cannot uh, fully penetrate. So it can coerce me perhaps to act in certain ways, um, as you know the Habesian state might do to to the subject. But it can never fully um, mold my own uh, self understanding. And I think with Gramsci, Gramsci is often seen as the fourth father of. Um, of contemporary critical theory that that um, takes issues with this liberal account, because really for Gramsci, um, one of his interests is the way that education functions as a way of of creating subjects that actually repeat and participate in this enactment of legitimacy on, um, on the part of the dominant class. Right. right. Um, so so yeah, there's this um, there's this belief that. Uh, class structures not only dominate um, material relations, but also ideological and by proxy than political ones. 
Interesting. So, so with, with Gramsci, we have perhaps for the first time an awareness, an intense awareness, an obsession even with how we as individuals become subjects to the state, whether state projects, class projects, you know, institutional projects. And you can see why Gramsci is such a contemporary figure because really you might argue the entire social scientific disciplinary disciplinary apparatus really takes up this project in more or less conscious ways like some some of them you know give Gramsci a lot of credit for their disciplinary uh, you know foundations and and many of them do not but as i think it was Gramsci who wrote you know all all of the most pressing problems that that, that of society uh, boiled down to political science so i guess you found yourself in the yeah. appropriately Gramscian <laughs> discipline after all so although although probably meant something very different than what we take to be political science today uh, absolutely so. <laughs> right there, there's a, there's certainly a gap um so let's use Gramsci as a as a jumping off point to talk about uh, getting into the neo-marxian state debate sure of the late 1960s, what do you think the key debates that Gramsci brings in? I mean, he seems to straddle the line between the so-called instrumentalist and so-called structuralist side of things. We can break that down soon. He's very fertile ground there. So what do you think are the main fractures and rifts? Uh, there's a kind of resurgence of interest in Gramsci in the late 1960s and you know through the 1970s, primarily in, um, in Italy, but also in, in France. Um, where uh, people kind of are start to read him again in a new light and try to apply some of his theories to in a more, I guess you could say, systematic manner. Because of course his prison notebooks are very elusive in that sense. There's not a very, there's not a lot of coherent theory there that's there that that you don't have to reconstruct. Mm. But you have to sort of always work out some of these elements that are sometimes even confusing or contradictory. Um, but really, really the- reading Gramsci is kind of like the Da Vinci code. <laughs> <laughs> like you can imagine Tom Hanks, it's Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci code movie, right? I think I only saw part of it once or you can imagine like Tom Hanks running around, uh, you know, trying yeah. to crack the Gramsci code, uh, because to be clear for our audience, you mentioned he was imprisoned by the fascist, re- the Mussolini fascist regime in Italy in the 1930s. And uh, so he, a lot of his writings had to pass uh, the censors, you know, when he would pass these writings out of prison. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of debate in Gramsciology, you might say, about how to interpret certain words that actually meant other things, certain phrases that actually meant other things. And there's been some significant advances in the literature on that in the last 10 years or so, but the, the jury is still very much out. So you're, you're right to point to that kind of confusion and that, but that's also a productive, uh, productive oh, enterprise, right? I think that's absolutely. Kind of what you're getting yeah. at, right? Yeah. So uh, just to sort of turn back to the original question, then the, the neo-Marxist debates, this literature primarily emerges in Western Europe in the mid to late 1960s uh, in West Germany, in France, in Italy. And in England, um, and what this literature tries to do, or the kind of gaps that this scholarship tries to fill in, is you know the absence of a of a coherent theory of the state in Marx and Engels, or at least a very clearly outlined theory of the state. And then some of the to, to fill in the gaps of some of the subsequent interpretations that you get in Lenin and in Gramsci. So they're mostly influenced by Gramsci, but um, they're always kind of looking for textual references back in in the other sort of so-called classics. So the 
the main divisions within that literature, I guess you could say, boil down to maybe three conceptions that people usually look at, and that's instrumentalist theories, structuralist theories, and class struggle approaches or theories. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the miliband kuantis debate now or break down what each one of these meant first, but... Um, Sure. So let's. I'm glad you brought up those distinctions uh, because they're they're operative throughout the history of of Marxian uh, state theory. So let's break down each one uh, separately. And of course, we're just on the brink for those Miliband or Poulancis heads out there. Uh, you're on the edge of your seat because you can tell. Uh, you just can't wait. You're you're salivating like Pavlov's dog. Uh, yeah, because all, you know all ten of them out there. All ten of you. All there's a baker's dozen, I would say, including you and I. Uh, Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> we're about to get into the Miliband Poulancis debate, but let's talk about the the way that that's framed and the distinctions uh, along the line. Mm -hmm. So let's start with yeah, instrumentalism, structuralism, and the, and the sort of class struggle model. Let's break those down. All right. Yeah. Sure. So, um, and before we even say all of these differences, um, it's I think it's important to point out what they shared in common, which is a a concern with the way that um, the social democratic order of post post-war Western Europe was able to maintain itself in this kind of um, model of stability, um, sort of you know the glorious thirty years from 1945 to 1975 or so. Mm -hmm. So all of these competing theories, I think, are trying to account for the same thing, which is that why was there not a revolution in the West after you know after 1945? And what is the relationship between the capitalist state and left political movements, most broadly framed? So instrumentalist accounts basically argue that there's a there's a kind of uniformity of interests between the economically dominant class and those individuals who are most prominent, most prominently in control of the state and various state institutions. So um, they kind of attribute they they explain the stability of capitalism and of the state by virtue of things like interpersonal networks between, you know, big capital and so-called state managers, mm -hmm. commonality of interests, shared ideology, basically a kind of common worldview that prevents the state from acting in any way that is opposed to the interests of big capital. So instrumentalism, of course, is interesting because no one really called themselves an instrumentalist. It's a label that was attached later on to people like C. Wright Mills, who was never really a Marxist, mm. um, to Ralph Miliband, to William Domhoff, and to some other figures. But more than anything, it was a kind of, it was a foil for this next account that I'm going to talk about, which is the structuralist theories. Okay. Um, which, you know, if instrumentalism is supposedly very crude, structuralism is much more refined. It emerges from um, the contributions of Althusser and Balibar in the mid to late 1960s and argues that basically the capitalist state is objectively, objectively and structurally situated within the capitalist mode of production, which means that this, it really does not matter who is actually in charge of the state apparatus, what their personal networks are, what their personal ideologies might be, because by virtue of the state's being enmeshed within capitalism, it can only act in a way that reproduces both the capital system and, by proxy, its own existence. And of course, the work of Nikos Poulantzis, uh, at least his earlier writings, are usually brought up as an example of this kind of approach. 
Um, and then finally, the kind of um, class struggle theories are were ways to, I think, to moderate some of the overtly structuralist claims of you know this previous approach um, to argue that the state structures class conflict, but class conflict then has a feedback effect on the way that state institutions operate and you know whose interests they they act in right. and advance. Um, so usually the work of Fred Block, Eric Olin Wright, some of the more contemporary sociologists, you know, of that generation are seen as the representative of that approach. That's a good, uh, that's a nice little survey. Um, where, just to be clear, um, I mean, it's it's really becoming apparent to me in this conversation where we're already well over an hour. Um, I'll put the full version up on Patreon, but we'll have to cut some of this down just a little bit for 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 the masses so we don't lose too many people. Uh, however, it's, it's, you know, this is just episode one of at least a five part series. It may end up being longer than that. We're, we're going back to school and on a uh, dead punnet society. Yeah. So you are our founding theoretical, uh, 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 beacon, if you will. So if we don't cover all of this in, in fine grain detail, that's okay. Cause we will certainly be returning to it. Uh, definitely this, the post-war stuff. Uh, so with this, I really wanted to lay the foundations of the state and the broad kind of like connection that you tie between the kind of yeah. ideological function of of developing a state theory along with the kind of material political uh context of all of the various state theories and i think we've done it's a, that really it's a big well. task <laughs> it's big and you're doing a really great job i'm i'm enjoying the hell out of this i think my i know my audience is going to really like it as well so let's let's dive in let's get into the famous or infamous rather milliband Poulance's debate. And we don't have to go, you know, sort of uh, charge by charge, but let's just talk mm -hmm. about the broad strokes and how, uh, you know, I didn't live, we, neither you nor I lived through that, but our mentors did. And they have told me, as I'm sure they've told you, that that was really a defining moment on the international left in that time, right? Like whether you defined yourself as a Milibandian or as a Palancian was was really uh, a, 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 I mean, people there were probably fistfights in some places over this over this. Shit, yeah, right? I can I can imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. really, yeah, the the debate's an interesting time because it. Um, so uh, Clyde Barrow, who's a you know you know very prominent scholar of of Marxism, has this to say about it, and I, I really like the way that he puts it. Is that it? Uh, the Miliband Palancis debate put this question of can there be a Marxist theory of the state? on the table. And at the same time, it foreclosed the possibility of ever arriving at any coherent theory. Um, you know, what because, a tease. Uh, what a tease. Yeah, right. I know. Um, the, so, and basically, um, the, the whole debate originated in response to Miliband's book, uh, The State and Capitalist Society, which was published in 1969. And Poulances wrote a you know, a, a very interesting and somewhat critical review of it in the New Left Review that, that same year, um, which then prompted two more responses by Miliband, one of which was a review of Palance's own book, Political Power and Social Classes, which was, you know, even much more critical than that. And then Palance's responded, Leclau responded. So there was a kind of a, an exchange of about uh, six essays in all. And the, what was at stake in this debate was this question of can there be a Marxist methodology for studying this abstract object? Mm -hmm. um, because both Miliband and Palancas, I think, kind of agreed that the state is, as such, is not a thing, um, but it's a, 
it's a way of representing certain relations of power that, while not themselves immediately tangible, have sort of systematic or structural effects on society as a whole. And But they had very different ways of approaching this. So Miliband, for example, has what we would call an, an institutionalist approach, where he says, all right, let's look at what are the concrete institutions that we tend to call the state right. and how do they act, you know, in relation to each other and who are the people who then, you know, have the most prominent voices within those institutions? What social class do they come from? Mm-hmm. And how, how does this then help perpetuate capitalism in Western societies? And Polanzas comes at it from a much more abstract, if you will, way of thinking about this because he's at this point, he's still very much grounded in, Althusserian epistemology. So he, and so he argues that we can't study the state just by looking at what state institutions are there out there empirically, because our empirical representation of them is always going to be tainted by the dominant ideology in society. So we need to actually go back to Marx, Engels, and Lenin and Gramsci, and parcel out of their writings a coherent, abstract theory of of the state as such, the state in uh, the capitalist state. And only then can the, can we bring this framework to bear upon specific variations of the state, you know, in various countries, in various points of historical time and so forth. Mm-hmm. So really the debate between the two became sidetracked where it was no longer a debate about sort of specific states or specific state activities, but more a debate about the methodology that we bring to study this topic, which the debate kind of left this very much unresolved. So what it did on one hand, Elias Barrow says, it kind of put the, the this question on the table, but then it fragmented Marxist theories of the state into a variety of trajectories and research agendas that were not always compatible with each other in terms of their underlying theoretical uh, frameworks. Right. So, I mean, maybe some of the, to, to try to distill some of this out, I mean, there's so much there. You did a, I mean, that was a good overview, but just critical takeaways from my audience. The Millibandian approach seems it really shares a, a kind of uh, intellectual lineage with C. Wright Mills, who might be somebody that uh, my listeners are more immediately familiar with. They've certainly maybe read them and read Mills and their sociology courses in college or or they've come across his, um, you know, his power elite notion or, or whatever else. And so Miliband is concerned with uh, the folks who are at the top rungs of society and how they reproduce themselves. You know, they, they, they talk, they, they go to the same social clubs, they, they go to the same university, the elite colleges, universities, they um, are, uh, yeah, they, they attend they go to each other's houses and in, in, in social yep. events, and and there's a certain kind of socialization into the ruling class that way, which which gives them a certain uh, unity of action, you might say, mm-hmm. across the various institutions. Is is that a fair uh, sort of assessment? Yeah, absolutely. And then Polancis, I won't give my. I have a fairly idiosyncratic reading of Polancis, and it's I'm still developing it. But maybe I'll unleash that on the masses someday. But today's not a day, <laughs> the, today's not the day for that. So, but I think you know, for me, this is what I love about Polancis, and this is why I think his Althusserian. Um, and we won't get into Louis Althusser. He's known for his uh, ideological state apparatuses, right? And this notion of interpolation that 
Yes. That subjects. And if you've come across this, listen up. If you haven't, ignore it. <laughs> so for 30 <laughs> seconds, here we go. The idea that subjects are interpolated uh, into the sort of capitalist ideology uh, as as someone would be hailed by a police officer. When, a poli- when you're walking down the street and you hear a cop uh, from the sidewalk say, hey, you – And you turn Mm -hmm. around in response to that, you're being interpolated by power. You're being integrated and subjectivized into the power order, into the ideological power structure. Um, And ISAs, these ideological state apparatuses, uh, are things like schools, churches, um, you know, other political uh, sort of ideological uh, apparatuses. This really harkens back to to Gramsci in in a big way in the way that you sort of spelled that out. Absolutely. And there's certainly a Gramscian reading of of Althusser uh, that happens, uh, but we won't get into those debates. But the, my my favorite takeaway from the from Polancis in terms of his Althusserian moment is to say that actually ideology is something that we as socialists are we're always going to have to contend with that because the humanists. I'm going to get a lot of shit for this maybe from the humanists, but that's fine. I'm, I'm being vulgar here and breaking things down in sim- simplistic terms. That active contingent of humanists out there. That, right, right, right. The, the, human, that, yeah. the, 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 the other bakers dozen out there. So, they're out there. Believe me. It's odd. It's yeah. weird, man. They, they're not even like holed up in grad school. Like, you know, they're just, you know, like tech people during the day. Well, they, and they do read they know their, that's the question. Maybe not. Maybe or, not. Or are they interpolated into it? There you go. There you go. So the humanists would say, you know, and there, there's a streak of this in Marx that like our true species being is revealed in the communist mode of production or just in the absence of capitalism. Right. So once we dismantle capitalism, we will then all be free to live our authentic sort of species being. And uh, and therefore, my, the takeaway is that under communism, under socialism, there's no such thing as ideology. Right. Things just are as they are, I guess you might say. And social relations become completely transparent to to themselves and to each yes, other. Yes. Much, much better put than I'm sort of bumbling along. <laughs> but but what Althusser's main contribution and Poulancis really develops this, I think, in important directions is to say that, no, that's that's absurd. There's always going to be ideology. Right. Like there, there even in, in, in socialism in communism, uh, they were potent critics of the Soviet Union. Uh, because of this, because they recognize that, no, 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 the Soviet Union is not post-ideology. Like they have their own sort of ideological formations that come from the kind of alignments and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if you have any more. You, you could build on that. Um, go for it because <laughs> I'm sort of stumbling. <laughs> no, I think the only thing I would add is that, um, you know, uh, this kind of comes back to Gramsci and it comes back to this question of where we draw the boundaries of the state. Right. Because um, then ideology is, you know, if ideological state apparatuses um, are not specifically state apparatuses, so they're not just, um, you know, uh, the the bureaucracy or uh, the executive branch or parliament, but they're schools, they're um, trade unions, they're they're organizations that we nominally consider to be in the private sphere. Um, This, you know, it, it brings up this question of this juridical distinction between state and civil society, between yes. public and private, like where we draw the boundary between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and this kind of comes back to this, you know, the question of um, 
how expansive of a definition of the state are we working with? So uh, Miliband, for example, had a much more circumscribed understanding of the state as speci specifically public institutions of power, right? Whereas Polonsis has a much more expansive understanding that includes these kinds of ideological institutions as well. Yeah, well put. And, and that's, a, that's a good place to go now with Polonsis in terms of the state is understood as this kind of Gramscian integral state, which which is a structured field of class forces. It's the, it's the, it's the condensation mm -hmm. of the balance of class forces at any given moment in history, in historical time. Um, it, I like that word yeah. condensation. It's a beautiful line, I think, from state power socialism. Yeah. Uh, and it captures the way in which the class, uh, the, 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 the state and, and institutions are kind of a snapshot of the balance of class forces at any given moment. Now, not to get too far in the weeds, but that conception struggles to deal with the uh, the uh, materiality of institutions and the stubborn uh, stickiness, you might say, of social relations. That even once the balance of class forces has shifted, institutions have a certain inertia. They don't like to change. And so Polonsis really struggled with grappling with that, like the dynamism of the balance of understanding the state as a balance of class forces. Yeah. But then on the other hand, he struggled with trying to square that circle to encompass the way in which institutions themselves are oftentimes like anachronistic, right? Like you can imagine, look at the Supreme Court, look at what the fucking Supreme Court's going to be uh, in three years time. It's going to be full of troglodytes. And right. uh, you can imagine if we take over Congress and the, you know, uh, with this, you know, political revolution of Bernie Sanders of, you know, sort of soft social Democrats or whatever. Yeah. You can imagine after 2020, right, because of the materiality of the institution of the Supreme Court, there's going to be a real problem there where it's not going to reflect the current balance of class forces in the state. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that's a, there's a strength there of Polonsis and there's also kind of like, um, a problem, but it also signals forward, uh, into the kind of blockian or other kind of, uh, conception of the state. Maybe you can sort of riff on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think you raised like a really important point here because, um, so Polonsis last book, which you mentioned state power socialism published in 1978, um, in which it's kind of a transitional work to it towards, um, I think some other things he would have written before his premature death. Um, but there he does argue that state institutions are not simply autonomous powers in their own right, but they're, they're class, like you said, they're condensations of certain class relations. And the state ultimately is itself a class relation, um, or um, not even so much a class relation as a social relation. Um, and But this raises a whole host of questions about political strategy. And I, I read state power socialism as a book that's trying to grapple with left political strategy in relation to the state because he you know he also wouldn't think that something like um the, the second international strategy of occupying certain state institutions and working from within the state um, are going to be sufficient because you're always going to have other reactionary institutions within that same you know constellation or framework that are going to position themselves against it so you need, uh, he argues you need both. You need a kind of inside-outside strategy in which a left political movement tries to secure certain influential positions within the state apparatus, but also build its own hegemony outside in these nominally private institutions 
in which I think Pilates is kind of riffing on ground sheet here as well. Right. Um, so, but yeah, and um, as you said, I think the understanding of the state as um, something that's almost like a sedimentation, right? So there's, as time goes on, there are layers and layers of policies of social relations that come to have an effect, but they're always sort of, so the underlying layer is always eroding while the new layer is being built. Um, so it's not so much a question of seizing the state and transforming it in a single single uh, sweeping motion, but rather um, kind of chipping away at it as if it's like a, you know, again, maybe to use this metaphor of like a block of granite or something. Right, right. Um, but yeah, and then the class struggle theories, which I think is what Poulantis is getting to, really argue that you need, basically they argue that you need this moment of um, outside pressure as well for the state to be more responsive to the interests of the left or to more democratic movements more broadly. So Bloch, for example, he kind of argues that there's a state managers ultimately follow policies because of um, the structural relations that they're put in. So they have to reproduce the conditions for the accumulation of capital because that's what then um, also provides the state and their own positions with a certain kind of legitimacy that they want to maintain. Mm -hmm. But Bloch thinks that um, outside pressure, for example, like what you had with this, in the case of the New Deal, this kind of mobilization of the left ultimately led to a more, um, to the emergence of a more friendly policy of the state towards left groups, towards Democrats, towards um, labor unions and these organizations rather than towards the interests of capital. So let's take it to the the strategic uh, sector for a little while because we've really gotten into the weeds. We've gotten some really great distinctions between the instrumentalist, the structuralist, uh, and the class struggle approach. We've talked about the Miliband-Palancis debate. There's way more to say about that, uh, you know. Uh, so if you're if you're hungry for it, uh, reach out to me, shoot me a message, and, and I'll point you in the right direction to get some readings on this stuff. Uh, and that goes for the rest of the episode as well. Uh, you can certainly reach out to me at Dead Pundit Society, and and I'll give you all of the reading that you could possibly stomach. And if I don't have enough, I'm sure Raphael will uh, will be able to point you in the right direction. He's got uh, yep. a 400 page dissertation to show for it. So uh, no problems there, people. Yep, so let's go to the strategic stuff. We're all socialists here. We want to change the world. So there's there's a direct import there. One of the one of the ways that Polancis gets uh, sort of attacked on the socialist left, and this has somewhat fallen out of fashion as time goes on necessarily, but but the late great Ellen Mason's Wood uh, wrote a, a scathing polemic of Polancis and sort of accused him of setting uh, the stage for this move away from the Marxist conception of the state. For Are you thinking of the retreat from the retreat from class? The retreat from class, right, right. Yeah. Among others. And so, you know, there, there's a way in which um that is also now we can talk about the autonomization of the political realm until we turn blue in the face. You have a couple articles about that very thing. Mm. Uh but but let's intertwine state autonomy, and, and we'll explain what that is. Let's intertwine the appearance of state autonomy in the 1980s with this attempt to develop a democratic road to socialism in the 1970s. Uh, because mm -hmm. it seems that the devolution of social democracy in Europe, right? There were a lot of brave projects in the in the, in the late 60s and, and into the 1970s and France's Mitterrand, 
yep. you know, runs up against uh, the contradictions of global capitalism. Of course, we saw that in Chile, tragically. But there were a lot of other instances of how this played out in Greece and elsewhere where it seemed like there were really promising social democratic movements, uh, both parliamentary and politically, uh, to go beyond capitalism. And they all ran aground when global capitalism ran aground uh, in the late 70s. And so that's when we see, once again, uh, material and political uh, forces, material and political circumstances, condition, state, theoretical orientation. Surprise, surprise. Here we are again. The 1980s, you see the appearance of state autonomy. So break down that critique of Polancis for us and tell us how this state autonomy appears in the 1980s. Yeah, so um, this question of state autonomy is interesting because Polancis, in a lot of his works, writes about relative autonomy of the capitalist state, which basically means that um, the capitalist state, in order to successfully reproduce the conditions of capitalism, must maintain some distance from um, the interests of any particular faction of the capitalist class. So it basically needs to mediate the common interests of the capitalist class as a whole um, and turn them into state policy, into political policy. Um, so if, for obvious reasons, then you see the state is not directly under the control of any particular um, group of people. Um, and the, But the, the kind of state autonomy school that you're talking about comes from the late 1980s is actually, confusingly enough, a critique of that, because they still argue that Poulantas is too much invested in uh, class reductionism. Right, right, so they, right. they kind of see it as um, trying to do some innovative things in terms of breaking with the class reductionism that Marxism has traditionally been known for, but it's still way too abstract and it's not kind of like historically specific uh, in terms of the cases he looks at and it's too socially or class reductivist. If I may so, jump in, um, it seems it seems like, you know, the Polances and we Polancians, I certainly put myself in this category, we can't catch a break because for the right. kind of bourgeois <laughs> theorists, we are just class reductionists. Yeah. And for the, I don't know, hardcore orthodox Marxists, whatever, you know, you might want to call we're them, reformists. we're b- yeah. bourgeois reformists, you know, we're, yeah. we've, yeah. we've devolved the true Marxian uh, state theory. So we kind of, you know, it's a lose-lose to be a Polancian these days. It really but I, is. It but really I want to break down <laughs> that distinction. There's a really great interview that appeared in Marxism Today. I think it was Stuart Hall, actually, who was interviewing him at the time. And it was, yeah. it was, it was published just a few months before his death, uh, Polancis suffered from depression, uh, uh, you know, uh, throughout his whole life, he underwent shock treatments, all of the kind of horrible, horrific stuff that people uh, with with that kind of mental illness underwent in the 60s. And he eventually committed uh, suicide. He threw himself out of an eight story window or some such thing during a, a, a manic episode, I believe is what we would call it now that he was having at that time. So very tragic, uh, untimely death. But a couple of months before that, in this interview with Marxism Today, you know, they asked him, so what is your relationship to the the relations of production? Because you've argued that, yes, there is this relatively autonomous political realm. There is this class of state actors that have to see themselves as one step removed from the immediate needs of the capitalist class, right? So the state isn't an executive committee of the bourgeoisie necessarily, but the state has to have the interests of capitalists as a whole, the long-term interests of capitalism as a whole in mind, which oftentimes puts them at odds 
with with individual capitalists. Um, in fact, it necessarily puts them at odds with individual capitalists. And so you see different state projects and different power blocks emerging as a result of those intra-class conflicts. Now, uh, orthodox classic Marxism, classical Marxism wants to talk about uh, inter-class conflict. Polancian mm-hmm. sort of state theory is really concerned primarily, I think, with intra-class conflict insofar as there are divisions yes. between the ruling – various elements of the ruling class and various elements of the state. Um, and the, the fight for power uh, is going to play out along those lines and who can universalize their project, their, their own specific intra-class project at the level of, of the capitalist state. And really interesting stuff there. But so Palantis goes a long way in, in trying to insist that actually the political realm has its own logic and we should take it – even as Marxists, we, we should take the political realm – much more serious for its own sake. Yes. At, at yes, it's relatively autonomous from the economic sphere uh, because it necessarily has to be because the state managers ha- like, you know, uh one, one example that Leo Panitch uh, gives prominent state theory guy mentor of mine. He says, "Well, yeah, sure. Goldman Sachs is uh, you know, kind of what do they call them? Government Sachs, right? They're in and out of the US Department of Treasury. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that now with the Trump administration as well. However, um, you know, the when the Goldman Sachs CEO takes up the head of the US Treasury Department, he is no longer uh, you know, the 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 chief executive officer of Goldman Sachs." He's the chief executive officer of the American state and the U.S. dollar. And so he has to think differently and, and come up with different calculations. Yeah, he has a collective responsibility versus, a, you know, nominally a private one or a, just one for his organization and his shareholders. Yeah, right. So I'm jumping all over the place, but ultimately to yeah. land on this this position that, uh, you know, so Palancis took the the – political sphere very seriously in, in in opposition to a lot of Marxists who would who would just look at that as a reflection of the economic uh, yep. relations. And so Stuart Hall asks him and says, so what is your position? You've been accused of being this political autonomist, right? Of of eschewing the the uh the economic relations of production and therefore you're no longer a Marxist. And Palancis responds something to the effect of well, you know, I do take the political very seriously, but at the end of the day, if you call yourself a Marxist, and I do, there's this pesky thing. I think pesky mm-hmm. is the way it's translated from French. There's this pesky thing called the relations of production that you ultimately have to account for. So I think that shows that that long-winded spiel, apologies for the length of that, is just to say that even in Poulancis's final days, the months leading up to his untimely death – he acknowledged that, yes, I do take the political realm seriously, but if you call yourself a Marxist, and I do, you ultimately have to link that up uh, with the relations of production. Uh, so so the, the political autonomists in the 80s go one step further or many, many steps further. So maybe yeah. spell out that uh, difference there. Yeah. So um, the – well, the political autonomists and um, – I'm specifically thinking of people working in political sociology to this day, people like Theta Scotch Polar, you know, Peter Evans or some other very prominent scholars um, get, you know, they first get their bearings in 
a lot of these Marxist debates of the 60s and the 70s, but um, they bring in a very strong Weberian element to it. Um, and, you know, Weberianism really as a critique of neo-Marxism. So they argue that um, neo-Marxists are, no matter how much they try, you know, this pesky idea of <clears throat> the relations of production as being, you know, either dominant or determinant in the last instance has to come in at some point. Um, and mm -hmm. for them, they they see this as kind of a just a very unsatisfying way of, of uh, posing the question. So they really assert the autonomy of the state as a bureaucratic uh, and uh, sort of collective organization that whose primary focus is to um, claim the monopoly on legitimate violence within a given uh, territory and to, you know, in some cases uh, work for the reproduction of capitalism, but not necessarily. So they argue that the Marxists are way too functional about this whole thing, that someone like Poulantzas always sees the system as ultimately working in the interests of the capitalist class, even if it must, you know, in, go against certain capitalists in the short term. Mm -hmm. um, and for them, this is, uh, this is just not a very satisfying way of, of answering the question. So um, they argue that uh, the New Deal is a favorite example of, of Theodos Koshpol, and she wrote a very prominent um, essay in 1980, sort of comparing and contrasting Marxist accounts of the New Deal and then advancing her own approach. Um, she basically argues that the New Deal went against the interests of many capitalists at the time, and it also, um, but it did not unanimously succeed in advancing their interests, even in the long term. So there were, so the New Deal is an example where um, historical uh, social forces were able to mobilize in such ways to leave a historical mark on um, state policy in a way that Polancis and these other people can't account for. Mm -hmm. um, so this is all kind of a long-winded way of saying that the state autonomy school really saw itself as a much, even much more um, overtly politicist corrective of Marxism. And I, I think it's interesting. I think at one point earlier you mentioned the political implications of this kind of thing in terms of neo-Marxist debates of the 70s versus the kind of failure of social democracy in the 1980s. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the state autonomy school emerges in the mid-1980s, um, just as, you know, in the midst of these kinds of transformations of Western economies that we consider to be neoliberal, or at least the origins of neoliberalism at the time, right. precisely because I think they're trying to assert the independence of the state as a way to, you know, ameliorate some of these transformations of capitalism that are, that they see happening. So if social democracy can no longer rely on this kind of radical, these kind of radical movements that you saw in the 1970s, if those have kind of fallen by the wayside, where else can we find a center for progressive policies to actually be implemented? And they basically, their answer is the state. The state bureaucracy is the one, one uh, place where like progressive policies can actually situate themselves in, and protect themselves from this kind of neoliberalization of the social order as a whole. So we could really get into the weeds talking about some of the state autonomy stuff. You have a couple articles that you've already written and one in the works that's really fantastic and talking about uh, the transformations, uh, you know, with, with the, the Theta Scotch poll and some of these other uh, sociology, mm -hmm. uh, political sociology luminaries that, that are, you know, many of them still active and have written some important things. But it seems that the trajectory that we're really tracing here is that, the, you know, the Marxian conception of the state, starting really with Gramsci, 
and then moving into the neo-Marxists and C. Wright Mills does this early and then, uh, you know, Miliband and Palancis pick up the torch. It really sparks uh, a new interest in the state. Um, we didn't talk about the behavioralists, but we certainly could have Robert Dahl, uh, David Easton, uh, you know, who, who uh, recognized that the, their theories in the 1960s were insufficient in terms of handling social change and these kind of like mass class and uh, identity-based ruptures that were going on. Uh, you know, so it seems like even though what I'm getting at, the neo-Marxians really kicked off uh, this this wave of of state theoretical orientation, the trend has been to slowly but surely demarxify uh, yeah. state theory ever since. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's uh, so I think like the, the critique that um, the state autonomous made of the neo-Marxist in the 1980s was, you know, it, it was effective for people writing after them because um, it managed to boil down some of the, you know, uh, the critique of Marxism to a cop couple of primary points that then, they didn't really need to engage with some of these other debates that we've talked about any longer. So the, and of course, then by the mid, by the late 1980s, you have the kind of general discrediting of Marxism that comes with the fall of the Soviet Union. So Marxism kind of becomes a persona non grata in, uh, sure. in Western, in, you know, Western political science, sociology, cultural studies in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, I do think though that, some of these theories have, I think, important insights for us to this day, um, especially because my my hunch is that discussions of the state tend to become much more prominent during moments of crisis. I think it wasn't a coincidence that uh, neo-Marxism flourished in the 1970s, just as these Western societies were undergoing significant structural changes after 1968. And I think in some ways our moment is analogous to to that, although, of course, nothing ever maps itself out perfectly uh, historically. But we do have the same question of the capitalist state is undergoing some kind of transformation, especially here in America with Donald Trump, that has just completely thrown, you know, a wrench into what we knew about the autonomy of the state. What do you do when there's this guy who, you know, is actively trying to enrich himself and his own business partners at the expense of, you know, national policymaking as a whole? Um, does this mean we're back to Miliband and kind of do instrumentalist theories actually allow us to explain some of this? Or, and I mean, I'm still thinking through some of these ideas as well. Um, but, but at the same time, now you have nascent left movements like DSA who are grappling with this question of um, political power and what is going to be the future of this organization in terms of electoral politics or mobilization in civil society. So I think we're coming around in some ways to a lot of these similar questions that we dealt with before. Right. I mean, it seems that the easy way to dismiss Marxism starting from the 1980s was to call it class, you know, God's oh, class reductivism um, or one of the, the, the buzzwords to kill it right from the start is to, to, to sort of slander it as grand theory. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? As an academic, Jesus. Uh, Marxism is a grand theory that it's just way, you know, and it's, it's got some good ideas, but it's just, you know, it doesn't get at the real 
micro levels of human interaction. So we just need to scrap it. Like there's that idea, right? But you see it once again, reasserting itself, the, 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 the primacy of class and class struggle uh, alongside all of the interlocking oppressions uh, is really yeah. reasserting itself in a big way right now. And uh, I think the kind of work that you're doing and reasserting this uh, state theoretical orientation is just as important um, as, as any other kind of political activity right now, because we're really, you know, these are, this is the ground, the question of how do we get to socialism is, is a live question again. So that, you know, the state, we're getting to the, the, the big payoff here. We've covered a lot of theory, a lot of history, and the payoff here is going to be a specific kind of political intervention into the arguments of today. And uh, one of the one of the big, are, uh, you know, call it a punching bag, call it an adversary, call it a comradely debate, if you will, uh, is is the argument that you know is in, going to be inevitable that we're going to need to have as 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 socialists who think that the state is a key sector of power, right? Uh, we're going to have to duke it out a little bit with some of these libertarian communists who, uh, you know, by my estimation for sure, really give the state short shrift. They sort of caricature it as this kind of place of pure coercion and that the state is not a realm that can be sort of taken by socialists in order to find a way to move beyond it. Um, what, what are your immediate thoughts and how do you intervene in, in the strategic uh, debates of today? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I guess I could pose this in a form of a question is that I would ask them what they see as the principal um, elements of what the state does and what its role is in today's society. Mm -hmm. And from that, um, whether they can envision any kind of positive function for it in the kind of, you know, society that they would like to see. Um, if we see the state, in, you know, entirely as a kind of coercive force, as you said, um, and you don't think that there are any positive functions that the state plays in terms of, you know, promoting things like equality, like, um, you know, protecting certain rights and freedoms for creating some kind of procedural form through which politics can be, you know, political decisions can be arrived at. Then, um, and if you think that politics ultimately is completely local, then I think that raises a lot of other potential dangers and difficulties. Um, for example, where you, you define what the boundaries of the local community would be, what would be the, you know, um, grounds for participating or being excluded from these communities. Um, and also the fact that um, a lot of the times uh, political oppression happens on the local level rather than emanating from some kind of centralized mm. um, coercive authority. Mm -hmm. So how would we, you know, how would we address those difficulties given the absence of some kind of um, need to engage with the state. That's a good question because I'm jumping ahead here. We'll come back to cover the foundations, but then the, if, 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 if we're wedded to this extreme version of localism, how do we explain the civil rights movement, right? Because mm -hmm. Bull Connor <laughs> right. down south with turning the dogs and the fire hoses on the young uh, black and white protesters, uh, you know, he was not going to be brought to heel by the local white supremacists, uh, you know, because the, right. the, you know, young folks and, 
the African-Americans who were fighting for self-determination had been just systematically disenfranchised. It was it was both their self-activity and the which spurred on the intervention of the federal government, which mm-hmm. sort of gave them the nudge they needed uh, to overcome that kind of <laughs> uh, direct Jim Crow white supremacy. And so this is a good play, time to bring in an article by Eleanor Finley. Eleanor Finley did an interview on This Is Hell podcast uh, coming out of Chicago Radio. It's also online. If you're not listening to This Is Hell, you should. It's a good show. Uh, But Eleanor Finley was on there. Uh, She has an article in Roar Magazine called The New Municipal Movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, She argues therein uh, much more than simply a strategy for local governance Radical radical municipalism is emerging as a path to social freedom and democracy beyond the state. Now, social freedom and democracy beyond the state. It's, it, municipalism is a localism that attempts to move beyond the state. We've seen this come up in DSA in various sections. Some people have called a version of this uh, sewer socialism, which is kind of a jokey way of talking about like, oh, we need to elect city officials who are openly socialist. And, and that has slightly different trajectories and lineages from municipalism. But talk to me about municipalism. It seems to carry a lot of um, you know street cred. A lot of people like this inside of DSA as a viable uh, socialist struggle to, to move beyond the state. Uh, what, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, I I don't want to be uh, entirely critical of municipalism and you know the way that it's defined and described because I do think that there is you know a lot of um, room and activity for local community initiatives, sort of initiatives to build community power, especially um, of the kinds that DSA um, tries to you know play a role in. Sure. sure. Um, I and I think also um, municipalism has of course become much more important since since the election, when, you know, we have this talk of sanctuary cities and of ways in which communities can mobilize to protect um, the most vulnerable of, of peoples within them. So I think um, even like as a defensive uh, defensive bulwark against sort of, you know, uh, what's his face, um, Jeff Sessions' uh, Department of Justice, it can, it can have certain positive effects. Um, I would simply caution against boiling all politics down to the local level, to the municipal level, without then asking this question of how do we build up from there into a more federal structure? Or even um, how do we um, how do we not simply opt out of participating in the current ways that we can within political institutions, but try to create some kind of linkage between these municipal movements on the ground and more long-term um, and more sort of um, longstanding institutions and policies. And I mean, I don't think that there's a clear answer to this yet, but I think that it still requires us to engage with, uh, to some to some degree with this question of what is the current state and what is its, what are its functions and how, um, how should we orient themselves, uh, ourselves to it as a political, political entity. I think without doing that, we're going to be spinning the wheel into these community initiatives that don't you know, that can't sustain themselves for the long term. 
Yeah, I like that distinction because really um, that was a nice corrective uh, to the way I, I put it. My my opposition is not to municipalism or sewer socialism as such, but it's the my opposition is to the way in which Eleanor Finley and some other proponents of it they 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 do it. Kind of, I would say it's kind of a sneaky thing. I don't think it's 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 intentional. I don't think they're doing anything you know intentionally like. Uh, uh, you know, openly deceitful or whatever. But th- what they're doing is they're tying that sort of localism, municipalism with a kind of state blind or at least like state ignorant, openly ignorant of the state kind of approach um, where I don't think you have to do bo- that, right? I think you can you can do both. You can look at sort of broad federal uh, sort of like movements, the Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, phenomenon and all that. Now, let me just let me just get to the brass tacks of the question. My suspicion is that people renounce the state as a site of struggle just because it's big. Right. Is that too simplistic? Like, it's just it's big. It seems like it's never going to change. It's a juggernaut. I'm not really sure how I can go in there and intervene. It just seems too unwieldy. And so the knee-jerk thing to do in, in light of that is to kind of just ignore it and maybe try to find a workaround. Do you, do you think that's yeah. do you think that's being charitable or, or, or not not charitable? No, I, I think you're you're really onto something because um there's this tendency to, you know, see the state as a monolithic block that more and more is um actually uh, you know, sealed off from the demos as a whole, and therefore the only possible solution where it actually might seem more feasible and easier to do is to build alternative sources of power, sort of um, that do not really engage with this entity. But I think actually what's where this kind of literature that we talked about um, of post-war Marxism can actually provide us with some interesting insights is that we don't necessarily have to see the state as this uh, monolithic entity that is, um, you know, free of internal contradictions, that's free of spaces for intervention and participation. And that actually, um, you know, it, I, I, so I think the challenge before us is to actually identify what those contradictions are, to find creative ways to press the state in order to um, not only enable greater sort of equality and justice, which is, which, you know, should be our goal as socialists, but also of making that those spaces more responsive to the needs of citizens and of democratic politics, broadly speaking. And I think that's possible to do, provided that we don't just reject the state offhand, but actually um, treat it as a, as a complex social relation or an entity mm-hmm. in which there is space for agency, provided that we first will we have a strategy and we know what we're dealing with. That's well said. I mean, I think that uh, one of the recurring themes on my show here is that uh, we want to sort of reinstitute what I'm calling in skin scare quotes, a left social democratic uh, ethos, a common sense, right? Which is just to say that, yeah, the state is a site of contestation. And it is a site, uh, it is a space where we should make demands. We should demand that rather than just the state being a site that subjects its citizenry to the demands of neoliberal capitalism, to the quote unquote free market, right? Which is what we've had for the last 35 years. 
it should be a site where we make demands of the state to provide for the well-being of its citizenry. And it, and it's, you know, so that's kind of the broad appeal. And you've really laid out, you've laid out in very close detail in terms of like how that plays out, pressing, producing contradictions and pressing. Right. Yeah, sure. Right. The state, it's a capitalist state. And ultimately it has, it's going to protect the profits of the corporations within its borders. Right. It, there's, there's certain contradictions of global capitalism where that has to happen, but there's wiggle room in between. And the more we press the state to provide for the well-being of our citizenry, the more we open up the rifts in those contradictions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and contradictions yeah, are the source of, of ruptures uh, for the socialist movement today. Absolutely. And I, I like the way also that you put um, uh, the phrase it this way, Adam, of uh, pressing demands on the state or making demands on the state. Mm -hmm. Because um, I see that uh, you know, this kind of engagement with the state needs to be a long-term project of the democratization of both state and society. Um, and it's a, it's a constant struggle that requires, you know, constant political engagement, but, um, democracy itself is not an end state, right? It's not, it's not an end point that we can sort of say that here we have concrete liberal democratic institutions and therefore, you know, on our polity scale or on our, um, some kind of, you know, scale of measure, we are a liberal democracy. Democratization in America has been a historical phenomenon. And I don't think it's a phenomenon that, um, that has ended, that ended in 1989 or, you know, in the present. So um, our task then is to press for this constant democratization. And we do that through engaging with the state and making demands on it. Well said. I want to end with this. Here's here's kind of my formulation that I've been returning to, and, and, I, and I think we've talked a little bit about this, uh, and, and you're in broad agreement, and I'm sure you can expand on it for our audience and for myself here. There's a lot of discussion about nowadays in particular around DSA and elsewhere, right, about oh, which which ideological orientation do you subscribe to? Right. Are you, uh, like we said, are you uh, a libertarian socialist? Are you uh, a communist? Are you a member of the communist caucus? Are you a social democrat? Are you a Harringtonite? Are you a this? And everyone is really taking their ideological affinity really seriously as though they're walking down the buffet line of ideological orientations and they're sort of picking from the one that they think is best. Right. And I used to get really into this and, and, you know, almost obsess over it like a lot of people. But nowadays, I just don't have time for it. And here's why. This might be a little simplistic, but I think it's an important orientation. There's only one capitalist state. It's the one that we've got. You know, there's only one system of legitimate representation in that state. And it's not good, but it's the one we've got. You know, there, there are only there's only one set of institutions that, you know, that actually provide or don't provide things for its citizenry. And it's definitely not perfect, but it's the one we've got. And so the only ideological or strategic orientation I care about anymore is looking at the concrete reality that's before us as the terrain of struggle that has to condition, uh, you know, uh, uh, the moves that we have to make in order to try to pave that road to socialism. And I think that's why state theory is so important because that's how we see that terrain. It's literally our eyes. State theory is our, is our eyes. It's the way yeah. that we view the world as a chessboard. Uh, and yeah. we can see certain dynamics and rifts, openings over here, 
uh, we see foreclosures over there. Um, and I think you and I have talked about this a little bit and you're in broad agreement about that. So maybe elaborate on that and we can end there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you really sort of nailed it because I would just say that, you know, it's this, this way of, as you call it, a way of seeing is, is a good way of putting it. It's, it's a way of representing political reality to ourselves for the purpose of figuring out what political strategy we then need to take, you know, assuming that we have kind of a common end goal in mind of, you know, we're all in DSA, let's say we're all broadly in agreement on the kind of society that we would like to see, or at least what the ideals of that society should be. Um, then the question is, how do we approach the existing structures of political power? Um, and the first step of doing that, of figuring that out, is then to ask ourselves, what do we consider political power to be? And what what do we consider to be the role of the state and the way that, and what do we consider to be the the way that it operates or how do we understand how it operates? So um, I see this and, you know, my work um, as both a scholar and a kind of uh, committed uh, democratic citizen is to, um, you know, contribute in some ways to laying out the problems before us, which then we can take up as, you know, as politics down the road. That's really well said. I mean, I, I think the work that you're doing is just as important as anybody else, you know, whether you're on the barricade or you're walking the picket line, uh, developing the uh, theoretical and strategic orientations and, and the, these ways of seeing uh, by understanding our society, our state and the power structures and the class structures that are around us. It's a task that in my estimation, it's really been uh, neglected, I think, uh, over the past 30 or 40 years. Not not totally. There's still a lot of people who are doing this, a lot of noble work that's sure. coming out. Absolutely. Uh, but, but by and large, it's been neglected. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just, I'm thankful that you're out there, Raphael, and uh, I look forward to to reading more of your work. I hope that now that you're done with the arduous task of putting out that dissertation, I hope that you'll, you'll popularize uh, some of this stuff for the masses, put it out there in Jacobin and elsewhere uh, in more digestible versions for the normies, uh, because we've really got to start seeing the state as this field of contestation of our, yeah. the articulation of class forces. And then we have to sort of uh, play ball in that field. So, yeah. Likewise, yeah. Adam, thanks a lot for, uh, for having me on. It's been, it's been a really, um, really, really good to talking on this thing. Yeah, sure. Let's stay in touch. Have you back on the show when the uh, new, new things crop up, but, uh, Raphael, thanks for joining us on the dead pundit society. Thanks a lot. Take care. And that was the full two hour juggernaut of an episode with Raphael Kachaturian on Marxian state theory. We took that from Marx angles through Lenin and Luxembourg and Gramsci and Miliband and Palantis and all the rest of it. I hope that you learned a lot and your heads aren't completely spinning off your shoulders. But if they are, that's a good thing. It means that, uh, you know, you've acknowledged the wealth of history and theory out there that is at your fingertips. Take a look. It's in a book, uh, The Reading Dead Punnett Society. Uh, anyway, <laughs> support the project on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a subscriber for $5 or more a month, and you'll get access to all of the B-sides we have there. 
which are extended interview content that we try to put out on a semi-weekly basis or regular basis, that is. There's going to be a lot more of that coming your way for season two. We're going to have a wealth of subscriber-only content. We save our hottest hot takes for the subscribers because we know that you will interpret them charitably instead of throwing shit our way. So become a subscriber, become a member of the society and get access to all that good content and support the new left agenda in the process. So our state theory and social strategy series rolls on. Episode two is coming to you shortly. Till then, dead pundit out. Oh, this you crazy mother.